Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after a long break due to the pandemic, the 2021 CFL season is finally here, and we kick it off tonight in Winnipeg. Former Ticat receiver and now color commentator on the CHML football broadcast, Luke Tasker, will join us on the program to talk about it. Vaccination rates starting to decline here in Canada, and the Delta variant continues to be a concern. Is it time that the government brings out the stick instead of the carrot? And the Canadian government has faced mounting pressure over the past number of days and weeks for not resettling Afghan refugees sooner. Many Africans say the news of the first airlift is a relief, but there are a lot more stranded people that need our help. We'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Canadian Football League is back. After a long, long absence, uh, the first game of the season is tonight in Winnipeg. Our Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, will play the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, of course, in Winnipeg. And uh, the Tiger Cats are back on CHML. We're really excited about that. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the team is already there, of course. They flew out yesterday. And uh, Coach Orlando Steinhauer says they're going to be playing their first game in 621 days. Without having any preseason games, you really don't know. That's my honest answer. I don't, I don't know how we're going to respond. I know how we've practiced. I know how we've continually gotten better. I know how we're approaching each day. Uh, that I can speak to with certainty. Uh, how we put it together, um, I'm just as excited to see. Well, we're all excited to see that and to listen to it here on CHML. But we're very excited about the broadcast team that's going to be working uh, Tiger Cat broadcast this year uh, with a number of different contributors to this. Uh, many of the names that you know, of course, uh, former Tiger Cats, Mike Morielli, uh, Marwan Hage, Rob Hitchcock, and uh, a number of other folks are going to be contributors to the uh, the programs off and on. Coach Sal is back. Coach John Salabatis is going to be back. And the play-by-play will be brought to you by veteran broadcaster R.J. Broadhead and uh, color commentator, former Tiger Cat all-star receiver, Luke Tasker will be doing the color commentary on Tiger Cat broadcast this year. And Luke Tasker joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Luke, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Hey, thanks a lot. It's great to, uh, great to be a part of the conversation and back in the mix with the team. Well, let's talk about this. How did this come about? Uh, the, the last time we saw each other, of course, uh, was that cold day in Calgary, uh, 600 and odd days yeah. ago. And uh, uh, it wasn't a fun day for me, and it certainly wasn't a fun day for you. But uh, uh, it, they're, they're back at it right now. Did you ever have aspirations about after your playing days of, of getting into the broadcasting end of things? Well, not exactly. I mean, I, I've always had uh, a thought of that. I did some internship stuff early on in my career, but uh, was, was not actively pursuing it. But really, was was uh, hoping that there would be something uh, that would that would sort of bring me, uh, if I after after I was done playing, sort of back in touch with the team and with the CFL. And as the Ticats, you know, uh, created the Ticat Audio Network and started to piece this together, the, uh, they they gave me a call to see if it would be of interest, and I thought that was a uh, that was a perfect a perfect way to to, to sort of join the Ticat uh, football club again in a, in a different capacity, but one I'm very excited for. Well, we're excited to, to listen to the broadcast this year too. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, the, the career path that uh, that you're taking right now, so similar to that of your dad, uh, the great Steve Tasker, of course. As a matter of fact, okay. as I'm sitting here in my home studio here, Luke, I, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, five feet away from me is an autographed Buffalo Bills helmet with your dad's autograph on that. So uh, we're all fans, <laughs> of course. Uh, and of course, after Steve's yeah. great playing days with the Bills, he got into the broadcast and for many, many years was a great color commentator on CBS. Uh, did you talk to your dad about the about the possibility when when you were approached about this uh yeah we did uh i we had dinner and i talked it over with him and we you know i'm just i was very excited about it and it's, and it's uh, you know something he's excited about uh as well and 
um, he, he's doing the daily radio show, of course, for uh, yeah. you know, 550 in Buffalo for the One Bills Live. And uh, that's sort of, you know, his, his media career is sort of fully radio at this point, and he's done yeah. get color for, you know, two decades in CBS, and he's done color on radio as well, of course. So it's very much so uh, that the, there's similarities uh, for sure. And so I'm, I'm actually very excited to be able to talk to him about this and about my, uh, you know, about my color commentary throughout the season and sort of, uh, you know, it's much more new territory for me than it would ever was to play a football game. So I, I'm actually probably going to be, you know, sort of picking his ear and, or picking his brain and sort of trying to get uh, some, some coaching or feedback from him in this capacity much more than I ever did as a player. There's just as much homework involved in this as there was getting ready for a game, isn't there, Luke? Yeah, it is. And, you know, the nice thing is that with, you know, with us, the, the CFL as it is with the nine teams, you know, as the season goes along, it'll it'll get, uh, you know, more and more familiar. I'm certainly familiar with the Ticats, um, you know, already. But, the uh, uh, you know, I, 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 we're just hoping we, – we've put this thing together in a hurry, we're, but we're all very excited about it. The Ticats have put together an incredibly professional staff with R.J. Broadhead, Dave Cato, and just – I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just very excited to be a part of it, but I'm and, and I think we're gonna we're gonna have to learn as we go a little bit. Uh, but we, you know, we did a we had our our sort of prep uh, you know practice run of a game day broadcast the other day, and I think we were all very pleasantly surprised with how um, well we put this together in a, in something of a short time. Well, it's a different ball game this year. Excuse the bad pun there, Luke, but I mean, you know, the league is back and we're all happy about that. Uh, but it, you know, it's, it's, let's face it, it's a different league because of COVID and because of the protocols and because of the 600 odd days, uh, between games. We missed a whole season last year and it's going to be a, a, a shortened season because of this. Uh, Coach O just talked about that in the clip we played just before you joined us, Luke, about, you know, this is the first game of the season. There were no exhibition games this year. And that's usually, of course, one of the best ways that a coaching staff can do an analysis and an evaluation of the talent that's available they didn't have that option this year this this is going to be awfully tough on the coaches that, and the players i guess to, to to figure out exactly how they're supposed to proceed from here they i mean they're jumping right into the deep end of the pool aren't they yeah they are and the games are um you know a, a small percentage more meaningful per game this year right with 14 regular season games so it is really getting thrown into the deep end I will say that preseason games help coaches. They help coordinators 100%. And they're very good for young players who are trying to, to determine where they're going to fit into the team or try, and trying to, trying to you know, take a job away potentially. Uh, for a veteran player, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know. <laughs> veteran players don't really love preseason games. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know if you'll see uh, – I don't know if you'll – I think that you're going to probably see, you know, like always, I imagine we could see some, some increased penalties uh, in these early uh, weeks. Um, you know, that even happens without the preseason games. I'm sure we'll see some of that. But I think we're going to see some high-level play as well. I mean, it, one year, two year, one off season, year and a half, you snap back into into the form uh, once once the whistle blows and things get going. I understand your thing about the veterans and, and playoff for exhibition games. There's a uh, great Tiger Cat, Mike Philbrick, that played on the defensive line in the 1999 Grey Cup champion team for the Tiger Cats. And uh, the players always used to kid him. He retired at the end of each season, and, and at the end of training camp, he'd say, okay, I'm coming back. Uh, <laughs> just try to skip that whole process. And uh, I can understand how the veterans are feeling that way. You know what you need to do, and you know how to get ready, and that's that's part of the thing. But it's, it's going to be tough. And I, I'm excited like you are, too. Uh, one of the big stories, of 
course, is, uh, well, the return, not just of football, but of Jeremiah Mazzoli back to quarterback. Of course, uh, Jeremiah got injured uh, halfway through that, that season in 2019. Uh, Dane Evans did an incredible job, of course, as the rest of the team did, uh, to get us to the Great Cup game that day. But uh, this is uh, uh, an interesting problem to have, uh, probably uh, the best one-two quarterbacking team in, in the CFL right now. Yep, I would agree with that. And I, uh, you know, Jeremiah, there's a couple other guys who had bad injuries last year who maybe in some ways benefited from uh, the extended, you know, the uh, the, the extra-long offseason uh, that was COVID. Um, but Jeremiah is just such a such a competitor, and he's, and he's so savvy with the game now at this point in his career. Um, you know, the decision, it didn't surprise me uh, the way that that went, and, and I, and I, and, but I, and it does appear to me that, that they really were going to let one of those guys earn their spot. And, you know, Dane did an unbelievable job in 2019, and it's just a benefit for the team to have both of those guys around still and both of those guys to contribute as the season goes along. And, of course, you never – I mean, it's pretty – it's fairly rare in the CFL that a quarterback plays all, re- all regular season games. That's right. At some point, I'm sure Dane's going to have an on-field impact as well. Um, and, we'll, and, you know, it's, it's just – it's a great spot to have that kind of depth and in a, in a, in a backup that has actually proven himself on the, on the stretch of what was almost a whole season for him. And that's that's a, an interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up about uh, about that time off. And you know, we're all we all missed the 2021 season, but the indications I got were uh, Mazzoli probably wouldn't even have been ready for the 20 or the the 2020 season. Of course, if if it, simply because of the rehab from the injury that he had. So this this bought him time. Uh, same with uh, Sean Thomas Erlington, the guy who's going to start a running back tonight. A great talent uh, from uh, Montreal University who got injured again and, and missed most of the season. He seems to be healthy again, and that's got to be a big plus for the offense. Yeah, uh, uh, early, Sean Thomas Erlington, I, when I spoke with him the other day, he also did made an effort to increase muscle mass in the offseason, too. And I think that, you know, everybody had this extra long uh, time off of the field where they could make the changes to their bodies or to their uh, technique and their, and their abilities that they, that they uh, had wanted to. I think that was one of the things for early was to, was to put on a little more muscle mass. And, and that goes... Of course, that makes your movement stronger, right? You're you're just a stronger player on the field. But a lot of that is also injury prevention. That you know, muscle goes a long way to protecting you uh, when you're ta- tackling, blocking, and all of that. The uh, uh, Chris Fry is another one who had a season-ending injury and is now back and healthy with the team. And um, uh, you know, I guess that's a hidden. You know, there's a couple hidden uh, benefits in there for a few guys in what was really a you know a tough year for everybody. Everybody you know on the planet really. Um, but uh, I don't think it. I don't think that it looks to me like Soli is is firing on all cylinders. I don't think there's any part of that injury that's still uh, uh, bothering him at this point. And everybody who's had who's had a bad knee, you know, it, it's on their mind at some point as the years progress. But uh, but at this at this far removed from from that uh, occurrence, I think we're going to see Soli at at a, at a really high level. There's always that that concern, isn't there, when a guy comes back from a serious injury? And 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 well, you went through that when Zach Kolaris had his serious injury and finally came back too. Yo, yeah, is he going to be up for it? Are they going to be right back and jump right into the fire? And, and these are professionals, and these guys know their job. And as you said, look, they're all they're veterans, so uh, you would expect nothing but the best from these guys. And they they'll probably carry on as if you know nothing had ever happened. And it's just it's business as usual, I would think. Yeah, I think you, it's hard to expect that of somebody, but it does. You know, I almost do uh, with Jeremiah, and like I said, a lot. Of, you know, 
you see those you see guys turn around a, a bad uh, ACL or some other serious injury, and they do it in the one off season. And you know, it's always a big question that that following year when you're only you know six to nine months removed from something like that. But you know, it, it, that hidden blessing might, is going to be huge, I think, for Soli that that uh, you know he had that, he had a little bit of an extended off season and. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think we're going to see him at his at his finest. Look, without the exhibition season, uh, and, and as you say, the rookies take most benefit of that. Uh, but who has the advantage early in the season here, the first two or three games? Is it the defense over the offense? I mean, you know, having played offense for so many years, of course, as wide receiver, uh, there's got to be a chemistry and there's got to be a, a, a communication between quarterback and receivers and running backs. And that, t- that takes time to develop, especially with guys that haven't played together for a long time. Uh, is it going to take a few games for the offenses right around the league to try to hit their rhythm? Uh, it might, you know. There's just that final little two percent of game speed that you that you don't get even in even in a uh, even in a live practice. You know, it's just there's there's just that last gear that everybody turns up um, uh, when, when it's live, and so it'll take us it'll take a second. Things happen just a touch faster, and it's going to take a a bit just to just to get settled in together. You know, I. The way that modern defenses play, though, I mean, there's so much communication on that side of the ball as well. They're gonna, it's gonna take it, uh, you know, a game or two to get uh, to get fully operational with with the uh, active live communication on the field. But also, you know, we're talking about professionals and a professional coaching staff here too, and it's you can you can plan a little bit for that. I mean, sometimes, uh, and and I don't know about this about uh, Tommy Condell or, or, or the Ticats this year, but there will be times where a team will script out a number of plays to start the game with, as opposed to just to, as opposed to going in there with uh, and calling it live. So, to, so these there, you can, there's different methods where they can sort of calm players down at, in the early stages of the game, and maybe maybe just giving them uh, an easy answer or an easy option early on and. As you progress through the season, uh, things can things can you know get a little bit more intricate as as you're comfortable with that uh, game day speed. But really, the interesting thing about it is us, uh, you know, all of us watching the game will will very doubtfully know any of that. Are, you know, it's gonna it, they're gonna be running live plays, and, it, and there'll be no there'll be no sign that 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 anything was simplified or scripted if it was at all um it's going to they're going to hit the ground running and and um if they if they sense that they need that uh some some form of of uh, simplification at the start um i'm sure i'm sure that they'll have the the the, uh wherewithal to to do that and it'll and it'll uh it'll be just as effective for to to, to us uh watching uh, uh um away from the field Got about a minute left here. Got to ask you, though, about the hype for this game. And you've heard it, Luke. You know, this is the Great Cup rematch 621 days ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Bombers are going to uh, raise the uh, the Great Cup banner at the, before the game starts tonight. Uh, is, is there are a lot of guys that are on the, the Ticats that, of course, were there on the field with you that day when you lost to Winnipeg. Is it on their minds, I mean, 621 days later, or are they just living in the moment now? It seems like it, it may be impossible to not let that those thoughts and that memory creep into your mind. The truth is we're just so far removed, even just chronologically. So much has happened since that Grey Cup. It seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah. And also everybody, for, for 30 days, for a month, for all of this training camp, they've been focused on this season and on a new, on a new uh, chance to, to make a run at it. And so that, that'll, you know, it's hard to see that. And I think, and as, as it's probably been 
well known by now. It's Coach uh, Orlando has practiced even that, right? I mean, they they've had the the Blue Bomber, uh, you know, championship ring on the on the on the board as they've uh, practiced throughout the week, and you know, so you just sort of let that let that sense or that anxiety of that get just doled doled over, and you, and you just turn the page onto what the new job at hand is, and so maybe slightly maybe maybe that will creep into the mind but once the whistle blows and the quarter has begun it's just it's just going to be another football game and that hype just sort of doles away as we're as we're watching new teams you know make plays and make mistakes and 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 try to win a game well, we're so excited and so glad to have CFL back and to have you as part of the broadcast team this year. Uh, game one tonight in Winnipeg against the Blue Bombers, and you can hear it right here on CHML. Luke, thanks for the time, and good luck tonight, and good luck uh, carrying on right through the season. Great to have you on the show today. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Luke Tasker, former wide receiver for the Ticats, and uh, now part of the broadcast team for Tiger Cat Football. And you can hear the game right here on CHML. Oh, and I should mention, by the way, uh, Fifth quarter is back, as per usual. It's a tradition here in Hamilton, of course. Well, the Tiger Cats on CHML is a tradition, too. Uh, but Rex Amperin will be hosting the fifth quarter right after the game and after every Tiger Cat game this year right here on 900 CHML uh, to catch the uh, the football action. So CFL is back in town. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking well since January about vaccinations and about uh, the the need for vaccinations, and everybody seemed to be on side. At least most people did anyway. To say, yeah, we've got to reach herd immunity. We've got to get those numbers up, and the majority of the population's got to get vaccinated. Well, uh, that has come and gone, and it's uh, just totally fizzled out, which is very frustrating. Yesterday on the show, we had a conversation with uh, biostatistician Ryan Imgrund, who's been tracking COVID and tracking uh, the vaccination problems that we've been facing. And and as Ryan told us on the program yesterday, uh, you want to get back to normal, to life as as normal? Well, that's not going to happen without mandating vaccines. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to hit 80 to 90% of our population until we get the under 12 population vaccinated and until we start to mandate vaccines for certain things like going out to the grocery store, indoor dining, things like that. We need to start to mandate vaccines because if not, we will never hit that 80 to 90%. We'll never be able to go back to a world where we don't have masking, where we don't have physical distancing because I think COVID-19 is going to be around for a very, very long time, especially if most of our population is not going to be vaccinated. So that was the message uh, yesterday on the program. And uh, I, again, I don't understand why the people at Queen's Park and in Ottawa uh, don't seem to be able to get that message. I mean, you know, we already saw the, the rollout for the uh, school program, which is going to be starting in a couple of weeks here in Ontario. And no, there are no mandatory vaccinations. Teachers, staff, no, don't need to get vaccinated. Uh, you can't make you do it. Students, not necessarily. And on and on it goes. There's a great piece in McLean's about this. It's called Vaccinations, No More Carrot, Bring Out the Stick. It's written by Scott Gilmore. Scott is an editor-at-large for McLean's and also a senior fellow with the Mug School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, Scott, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Are we there, Scott? Always great to be on the, ah, there on we the go. Call, on the program. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this great piece. By the way, I just love this because uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head here. Uh, what is it with with our elected leaders right now that they don't seem to have the backbone to do what needs to be done here? Because th- this idea about while well, we can't make vaccinations mandatory is is a political decision, not a medical one. Well, uh, so first of all, I apologize for the connection. I'm I'm way up in northern Canada trying to escape all of this nonsense for a, a little <laughs> while. So the connection's a little wonky. Sure, but. W- w- 
The answer to your question, it, it's a difficult one. It depends on the province and depends on the level of government. You know, starting with the prime minister, for example, one of the things that he's made very clear from the very beginning is that he does not want to lead on COVID. He wants it to remain a, a provincial uh, problem because it's a tough problem. It's a hard one to solve and it's going to involve some unpopular decisions. And because of the way that the Canada's federation is structured, he can get away with that. But then with our pro- provincial leaders, it's been different from across the country. And what you're seeing is generally an unwillingness to take decisions that are unpopular with their bases, not necessarily unpopular with the entire province, but unpopular with the base that's electing them. So uh, that's a very worrying clip that you just played from your, your guest yesterday. You know, if we're going to have to live with this, and if the only way out to back to a, a normal world is one where the vast majority of us are, are, are vaccinated, then it's going to be very difficult to get there. I don't see anybody mandating it, but possibly we can nudge people, nudge the reluctant ones forward by putting in, a, like I said, a, a few disincentives to remaining unvaccinated. And 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 you made this point in the article, and I think it's it's worth repeating again because we've talked about this numerous times on the program as well. Uh, I understand that some people are going to make an argument that says, "Well, it's my right to say no," and and whether or not that's legitimate, that, that's a, a debate, I suppose. But what governments can and probably should be doing, as you point out in the piece, is say, "Okay, fine, if you choose." not to get vaccinated. I can't make you roll up your sleeve, but I can tell you that your life is going to be limited because you're not vaccinated. And and we've seen this happen. Yesterday, we talked about uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York City implementing the policy. I'm sure you saw that, Scott, that basically says you want to go into a restaurant in New York, you have to show the proof of vaccination. You want to go to a ball game, you want to go to a, a live theater, you want to go to a concert, you have to show proof of vaccination. Can't make you get vaccinated, but we're going to say if you're not, there are certain things that you're just not going to be able to do. But even uh, uh, officials don't seem to even want to go down that road as much as some other jurisdictions do. Yes, and this puzzles me to this reluctance. And it also puzzles me when the public gets their, their, their backup about it. Because we already live in a life where this happens to us every single day. You know, if you want to go into the grocery store, you got to be wearing shoes. You have every right not to wear shoes. You're free not to to walk around barefoot as long as you want, but you have to accept that there are therefore going to be certain limitations. And when people call this segregation, I just have to roll my eyes because, you know, if if that's segregation, if that's a two-tier country, well, so is no shirt, no shoes, no service. And so is the fact that you have to show a, a gym membership card to go inside the gym or your health card to go see a doctor. So, yes, de Blasio, I, I would never suggest that he is a, a policy innovator, but he is moving <laughs> in the right direction in, in that way. We've also seen the exact same thing happen in France when Eman- mm-hmm. Emmanuel Macron gave a, uh, a speech about two weeks ago announcing that he was going to be bringing in similar restrictions. Within the next 48 hours, over 2 million Frenchmen signed up to uh, be vaccinated, well, French men and women. So, so obviously they don't get left out of the mix, and and I think that's the tact that, that we should be taking in this circumstance. And I saw this. I mean, even the uh, you know, the, it's it's frustrating when you see some of the other politicians that are jumping in, and you reference some of them in the piece uh, in McLean Scott, and it's 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 mind-boggling. I mean, the the acting mayor in, in Boston, who's a Democrat, uh, went that same speech, and uh, she's a black woman, and she said this is the same as is you know the, the the Jim Crow laws where you had to show papers to be able to get from one place to another. Uh, and, and those were god-awful days. And I, I don't know if the analogy is straight, but it's apples and oranges. This is a public health issue. This is not saying I want to identify who you are. It's are you uh, vaccinated? Are you a threat to the public health of other people that are going to be in that facility? I think that's a legitimate question. 
It's absolutely legitimate. And, and not only is it a legitimate question, it's a question that we have been continually asking and answering for years now. You know, if you want to go to university, you actually have to show that you've been vaccinated. You want to uh, join the military, you have to show that you've been vaccinated. We, we have these limitations, these rules already. We have what they call uh, vaccine passports since 1945. I carry one whenever I travel that lists everything from, you know, yellow finger to dengue dengue. And uh, so nothing, nothing is new under the sun here. But the reticence here, is, is it because this is new? I mean, I, I have heard that argument that, well, we're not quite sure. And, and I, it, as, as late as this past weekend, I, some people saying, well, we're not sure about the long-term effects. What's it going to be like? And I said, well, there, there are no guarantees in life. But I, I can tell you the long-term effects of getting COVID and getting the Delta variant, uh, you know, you could, you could end up with lifelong respiratory problems. You could have a heart attack. You could die. Uh, you know, compare that with what might or might not happen with some of these other things. It, it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's pulling at straws right now to try to simply say, I just don't want to do this. You know, there is a, a Canadian researcher and author named Dan Gardner um, who wrote a book a few years ago called Risk where he did a, a masterful job of explaining and, and demonstrating how human beings are actually very, very bad at analyzing and judging risk in the 21st century. We still have brains that were hardwired to allow us to survive in the, in the Serengeti. And so when we see something happen in front of us, when we see a car crash or when we see a family member get sick from COVID, that very, really resonates because our brain requires that sort of first and visual experience to understand that something is, is a danger. Um, but when we read a statistic or we hear about it second or third hand or see it in the newspaper, it doesn't resonate the same way. And so what that means in right now in 2021 is that when people are on Facebook and they see a friend tell them, oh, well, you know, COVID's not a real big deal. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hoax or Bill Gates is putting microchips in there. That resonates with them much more than when they listen to a show like yours, unfortunately. So it's human psychology. It's uh, it's possibly one of the great tragedies of the, of the human mind, and I don't, unfortunately don't have any answers for you about how we get out of it. But there's, the numbers tell a story too, and and I suppose to your point though, I, if people can be oblivious to that. I mean, uh, it, it's it's pretty easy for them now because of all the support that they can find on just about any social media site to be dismissive of of facts and their circumstance. But the facts, as as you stated, are that ninety percent of the new care, uh, cases, of course, of this uh, Delta variant, are from unvaccinated people. Uh, you are more vulnerable. You're spreading it. And as our biostatistician Ryan told us uh, yesterday on the program. Uh, we're not going to get rid of this. We're not going to get rid of the Delta variant. We're not going to get rid of COVID as long as people are unvaccinated because it's always going to be there. And uh, and, and that's something I, I don't think a whole lot of people seem to understand is that do you really want this in your life for the next 25, 30 years? Or do you want to at least be able to put this on the back burner and say, thank God we're vaccinated and we can get on with our lives like we did with polio, like we did with diphtheria and, and so many other different things that we have been already vaccinated for? Yeah, it's, it's a very puzzling um, situation because, you know, as you and I have discussed before, Bill, Canadians are doing extremely well. I mean, arguably, this yeah. generation is one of the luckiest generations in human history. And to be born in Canada is just an extra blessing on top of all that. We've never been so healthy. We've never been so, so wealthy. We've never had so much time to enjoy our lives. And yet, at the same time, we seem to simultaneously be less and less inclined to make any sort of sacrifices to recognize or to, or to support that greater good that, that we're all sharing. 
So, you know, when we think back to the sacrifices our, our grandparents had to make during the Second World War, or as you said, to fight some of those earlier pandemics like uh, or, or scourges like polio, nobody seems willing to do that anymore, or very few. And it seems to be fewer and fewer uh, with every passing year. And again, a, a great puzzle. It's, it's a tragedy. I don't understand why. But it's it's public safety, and that's the thing that bothers me. And I, I can't understand why governments aren't being adamant with that. And your example about no shoot, no shirt, no shoes, no service, uh, is something we take for granted. You know, I can't go into Tim's without shirt and shoes. I get that. Uh, why don't you just say no shirt, no shoes, no vaccine, no service? Uh, it's it's uh, I think a logical forward step into doing something like that, especially for people that that are in what we consider to be uh, very important positions and and frontline workers. You know, when they started the vaccine rollout, and you talk, you and I talked about this months ago we were gratified i think to find out yeah those frontline workers those healthcare workers that have been putting their lives on the line they're going to be the first ones in line now we're starting to hear from a lot of those frontline workers that say no we don't want to be vaccinated are you kidding i mean you saw firsthand exactly what this thing can do to you the same thing with teachers these are the people that are in charge of the well-being of our kids for eight hours of the day and if a teacher says they don't want to be vaccinated, they say, well, we can't force you to. Maybe not, but you can say, you know what, maybe you shouldn't be in front of the classroom if you're not going to get vaccinated. There, there, there has to be consequences to our actions, don't there? There has to be consequences, and there has to be leadership that ensures that those consequences take place. You know, there has to be a principal or a school board uh, director who's willing to say, okay, fine, you don't want to be vaccinated. You're now the uh, the homeroom teacher to a broom closet, and and that's where you're going to be spending the next semester until, until you smarten up. But unfortunately, we don't seem to see that leadership, whether it's with teachers' unions, with premiers, or with our prime minister. And um, it's 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 very very frustrating. For example, the prime minister today could announce that you can't board a flight in Canada unless you show your vaccination papers. Now, that seems like a dramatic step, but it actually already is happening. I'm up here in northern Manitoba, where there's a lot of vulnerable remote communities. In order for me to fly up here, the airline insisted that, they, that I show them my, my uh, vaccine uh, papers. So it can already be implemented right now. It would be a federal responsibility, so he couldn't suggest that it, he doesn't have the authority to do it. And it would save lives, particularly when we have provinces like Alberta that are being so loosey-goosey with it that they're just going to become a source of, of uh, the, the, uh, the pandemic spreading further through the country. I'm trying to connect the dots here. I mean, we've seen the number of, of, of Delta variant cases rising in, in all provinces right across the country. Uh, not to the alarming rate right now where hospitals are worried about that, but you know, we're heading down that road. Uh, maybe not as, as quickly as we did a year ago, but we are heading down that road. Uh, I mean, we are running the risk. I mean, this is not fear-mongering. I mean, this is what our, our experts are telling us, that we could be looking at a shorter summer. We could be looking at possible partial shutdowns again. I don't think anybody wants to go down that road, but do they understand that, uh, that the consequences of their inaction here could lead us that way you know you're you're absolutely right you know we're actually already seeing i was reading this morning some statistic we're already seeing in some of the southern states like texas that hospitalization numbers are going back up to uh, levels that we haven't seen since the, the the last big surge in in the in the virus and so i'm less concerned about my summer being cut short than i am about my children's uh, school, uh, going back to school in September. You know, they've had like children all across the country. They've had a horrible 18 months of basically having desk jobs where they've been trying to interact and learn through their, their laptops with no friends, no extracurricular activities, no sports, 
no socializing. And unless we get our act together, I can see that happening again within the first couple of weeks of school starting in September. Just to your point, I know we're just about out of time here, but to, to go back to the title of this, No More Carrot, Time to Bring Out the Stick. Uh, the carrot has been tried in many jurisdictions, but you've crunched the numbers, you've seen the results of some of those surveys, and you talk about it in the piece in McLean's. Uh, it doesn't work. And the incentives of, hey, I'll give you 100 bucks if you get vaccinated, or, you know, there were lotteries in some jurisdictions, especially in the states, where, you know, put your name, get vaccinated, and you could win a million dollars and stuff like that. Uh, the vaccination rates went up marginally, if at all. It, it's That's not it. There's got to be something a lot stronger uh, from government to incentivize, I guess, if that's the word we want to use, uh, to get people to line up. Yeah, you know, again, it's it comes down to human psychology. Unfortunately, we tend to be, when we're reluctant to do something, we tend to be more motivated by the stick than the carrot. And the data that has been produced by various research studies, and not just this year, but in previous pandemics and previous situations, has shown that those who are the most reluctant to do it are only going to be pushed into it if they feel that they're, they're, they're having things taken away from them, like the ability to go into a restaurant or the ability to book a flight. And so if we want to get to those numbers that your, uh, your guest yesterday said that we need to get to, that's simply what we're going to have to do. And it's what's being done elsewhere in, in France, and Italy, and parts of the United States. And I suspect that eventually it's something we're going to have to do here. So if we're going to do it eventually, we might as well do it now. Uh, just to finish off our article here, I got to talk about the the reference uh, piece that you used here from the University of Sydney, uh, conducting a study of unvaccinated in Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US. Uh, and they talked about some of the the characteristics of these people. Uh, that uh, well, I think it tells its own story. Uh, they, they people that are saying they don't want to get vaccinated tend to be less agreeable personalities, less cooperative with others, more selfish, more extroverted. Uh, and well, in the vernacular, you said use the term well, a holes was. I won't use the whole word here. Uh, but people just simply want to thumb the nose and say, I'm not going to do it just because you're telling me to do it. And that, that seems to be an attitude with a lot of them. It does. And, you know, I think your listeners know this from their own personal life or from their, their professional lives. When you're dealing with people like that, you can waste a lot of energy trying to uh, be empathetic and respectful and encouraging and engaging and trying to understand their perspective. But eventually you have to slap your fist on the table or your hand on the table and say, enough. Let's get this done. We're, we, that you're you're messing up everybody else's life. We don't care anymore what your concerns are. If you want to get on the airplane, show us your vaccine papers. Otherwise, you can walk. Exactly, uh, Scott. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for the piece in McLean's, and thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, enjoy the rest of your time off up in uh, Manitoba. Great talking to you today, though. I will. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Scott Gilmore, editor-at-large for McLean's and a senior fellow, of course, at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The first Afghan refugees arriving in Canada now. This has been an ongoing process and something that the government has been being pressed on uh, for quite some time. Matter of fact, uh, dozens of former interpreters rallied on Parliament Hill calling on the federal government to bring their family members who are Afghanistan's to Canada as they face the risk of being kidnapped and killed by the Taliban. Shuali Shanin is uh, one of those people, worked as an interpreter for the Canadian military, and he calls on the government to bring his family to Canada. Every single day, my brother calls me, my father calls me, he said, like, because of you working for them, now we don't know what to do. We are lost. They're stuck right there. He said, the Taliban are literally kilometers, like three, four, five kilometers away from our houses. If they come and get me out, they will kill me. 
So how are we going to expedite this process? And expedite it we must, certainly, because of the severity of the problems uh, that these people are facing. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Chris Alexander. Uh, Chris Alexander, of course, is the former Minister of Citizenship and Immigration and Canada's first resident ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, Chris Alexander, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you spent a lot of time on the ground there, and I wanted to get your perspective on this about the intricacies and the and the and the hurdles that are are, are facing these people, and and the Canadian government's role in this. Uh, the U- U.S. government has finally uh, started a process like this. Uh, we finally got our first plane load of people on uh, Canadian soil today. Uh, I, I, I know a lot of people are asking me what took them so long. What did take them so long before the government would make a commitment like this? Well, it, it, uh, it is the right thing to do. Uh, it should have been done earlier, completed earlier. Uh, let's keep in mind that it started way back in 2008 when mm-hmm. Canadian troops were still in the country. Uh, we made a commitment to, to bring interpreters that had worked with our forces. And these people were essential. We could not have operated in the country uh, without them, either in Kabul or in Kandahar, where most of our troops were. Uh, they were our eyes and ears. They picked up nuance. They translated what local elders had to say. Uh, they put their lives on the line. So it's the right thing to bring them. About 500 came in that first period, 2008 to 2012. But now the situation is more dangerous. The Taliban have assassination teams all across the country that are literally going around finding out who worked for NATO forces, who worked for the Afghan government, and killing them. Uh, and it's it's awful. It's unimaginable uh, for us, but it's terrifying for them. So we need to take a larger group of people that worked for us, some who weren't full time directly employed, but were associated with the mission in other ways. Uh, it's the right thing to do. And I'm glad to see us doing it. It should be a nonpartisan issue that all Canadians support. But we also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Afghanistan is still at war. Our troops are not there. But they're facing an invasion. They're facing um, assault on their cities. Uh, And this is because we haven't dealt with the fundamental issue, which is the support of a neighboring country, neighboring Pakistan, for the Taliban. We need to uh, do something about this. The Security Council is meeting to discuss Afghanistan tomorrow. Uh, More and more people are talking about this, but it's time for action. When Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, we sanctioned him and his entourage. This is a much larger country, Russia, uh, in economic terms, uh, more nuclear weapons. Pakistan is doing essentially the same thing, has been doing it for decades. We need to take action to stop them. And, and Canada should be leading that effort as well. Let's talk a little about what's going on on the ground and how to try to get this and get these people onto these planes in the first place. And and we can talk about, you know, the, the, dip, the diplomatic haranguing that has gone on for a number of years. And uh, I mean, even last week, of course, when some government officials said, OK, uh, if you want to come to Canada, you've got 72 hours to register, which was just a ridiculous idea. And I know the Minister Sajad finally said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. I don't know who thought that up and who thought that was a, a smart idea. But the logistics, Chris, of trying to get people there, my understanding is uh, if to get to the airport in Kabul, uh, it's what about a six-hour drive? There's only one road, uh, and you, you juxtapose that with the fact that the Taliban say that they now control about eighty percent of that country again, since U.S. troops and Canadian troops and, and other NATO troops are leaving. How difficult does that make it for people to get from point A to point B on one single road to try to get to to where they can finally be airlifted out? It's very difficult, uh, and people will put their lives 
uh, be putting their lives and their families' lives on the line to do this. Um, my experience with Afghans is that when they have an opportunity that is solid, uh, they will take it. They will find a way. And if it means going to a third country on their way to Canada, they'll do that too, uh, Either usually either through Pakistan or through Iran. Um, we need to be smart about this. We have people in immigration, uh, in many government departments that know Afghanistan well. Uh, we don't have an immigration program on the ground in Afghanistan, but uh, we have people that know um, how the country works well. They should be uh, together in a team uh, making this happen quickly because it's a matter of life or death for hundreds, even thousands of people. And, and again, the fate of 40 million people is still hanging in the balance. Uh, you know, think back to 2011 in Syria when the world chose not to intervene, uh, a genocide followed and a civil war and now multiple wars in many countries. Uh, here we're talking about political action that could end a very, very long running conflict uh, and, and actually save many more lives than we'll be able to save by accepting these refugees. So we should do both things, uh, focus on the people that need us, the people that deserve our protection, and focus on the bigger issue for which Canadians died, after all. Uh, I mean, we didn't go to Afghanistan just to fight the Taliban and leave. We went to Afghanistan to create a peaceful, stable environment, which is not yet there for one primary reason, because the Taliban have one big supporter outside of Afghanistan's borders that are still doing their worst. How feasible is it to try to set up relationships with other countries, to try to find, uh, in other words, another lifeline, another way for them to get there instead of having all to go to Kabul? I mean, uh, do we as, as the Canadian Diplomatic Corps have the, the ability and those relationships to be able to strike a deal with some of these other places to say, look, we, we need your help here? Well, Afghans can travel visa-free to a number of countries. Yeah. So it's reasonable for us to say to those people, get yourself to that country, and then we will look after the administration from there. Um, I mean, the other option is to have people consolidate in different parts of the country and then work to bring them safely from there. Uh, there are still, uh, there still is air travel inside Afghanistan. It's, it's possible to fly from various provincial capitals to Kabul, uh, but all of this needs to be looked at in the uh, you know, case by case according to the evolving conditions of, of the time. The Taliban are, are, are on the warpath across Afghanistan and besieging various cities, so the situation is changing fast, which is why we need to work, work quickly, which is why it's important that you and so many others across Canada are taking an interest in this and talking about it. Chris, what about the Afghan government themselves? We, we know about the, um, the the pressure the Taliban is putting on there, and we've talked, as you mentioned, that there are basically death squads going around uh, trying to find these people that work uh, with the NATO troops and, and killing them and their families, and we've heard some horrific stories about that. But is is the Afghan government itself cooperative? I, I mean, are, are they ready, willing, and able to assist these people to, to, to come to Canada? Yes, I think they're happy to help uh, anyone who has this opportunity to be able to take it. Uh, but they're dealing with this much larger issue of an invasion uh, mm -hmm. from by Taliban who come across the border from Pakistan uh, and assassinate them as well, assassinate uh, Afghan government officials as well. Uh, they haven't taken any provincial capitals yet. There are 34 of them across the country, but the Taliban are certainly trying to. So the good news is that Afghanistan, which has been a rough and ready democracy divided uh, along many lines, uh, this crisis is bringing people together. And they're determined to defend their country, 
to defend their people. Uh, and our role in protecting those who work with us is part of that defense. Uh, but they also want us to continue uh, supporting the Afghan National Army, which we helped to train, supporting their civilian program. Uh, I mean, listen, the Taliban have taken over some border points. They're losing revenue because of this war. They need the support of the international community. And that's why it's important the UN discuss what's happening uh, and take action. Uh, President Biden's decision, uh, I think most Afghan experts think, was ill-advised to remove the last uh, troops from Afghanistan. Uh, they were playing an essential role supporting the Afghan government that is dealing with this, that has been dealing with this conflict for two decades. Uh, but the decision has been taken. Now we need to see what else we can do to support them. And Afghans, as they say, are coming together. Uh, in the last couple of days only, uh, there have been people in the streets in most Afghan capitals shouting Allahu Akbar back at the Taliban to say, God is greater than your violence. Uh, and we are coming together as a country to reject extremism, to reject uh, the, the brutality that the Taliban are already bringing with their assassinations. You know, they, they've captured Afghan soldiers in one part of the country and gouged their eyes out before discarding their bodies. Um, they are forcing women like uh, ISIS used to do and still does uh, to become sex slaves of their fighters. Uh, this is not a new and improved Taliban. This is a more ruthless, more brutal force than we've ever seen, perhaps, in Afghanistan. And we all, as an international community, have an interest to stand up for our values and help Afghans stand up for our values. The stated purpose of the mission uh, is, is to try to extricate these people that, that were so helpful, as you mentioned, uh, during the Canadian efforts in, in Afghanistan for many, many years. But given the circumstances that you've just described, uh, I've got to believe, Chris, there's a lot of other people that want to leave Afghanistan and would love to take part in, in this, uh, this, this movement to try to come to Canada, if they're possible. What, what's happening on the ground to try to identify who these people are and, and, and to prioritize who gets on the planes in this situation? Well, it's, it's going to be applications made by the people themselves. They will have to uh, provide documentation showing what their involvement was with us. Mm -hmm. um, Afghans are digital. Um, they have phones, computers. Uh, they can do this. Um, but then someone has to sit in one of our offices around the world, sifting through this data, verifying it, and so forth. So it's not going to be a fast process, and we have to... Uh, distinguish administrative processing from the actual moves to save people's lives and consolidate them while they wait for the processing to happen. Uh, I'm confident that's happening, but it's August in Canada and around the world. It would be good if even more resources were devoted to this. And I know there are many former mil military officers that are taking a strong interest in this effort and are willing to lend a hand uh, literally on a volunteer basis. Um, the conflict has already, as you correctly mentioned, uh, displaced a lot of people. I, the last figures I saw were that nearly a million people have had to leave their homes because of the renewed Taliban military offensive, which comes out of Pakistan. Um, and they've moved mostly inside the country, but thousands, probably tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands have left the country for Iran, for Pakistan uh, and for other destinations you know, as far away as Turkey. So we need to think about that uh, as we thought about Syrian refugees when they had to leave after 2011 en masse, uh, and about half of them, the whole country, ended up being displaced by that genocide, by that horror, uh, horrific uh, chapter in, in human history. Uh, we hope that 
this conflict doesn't escalate uh, or continue for as long as the Syrian one did. But stopping it requires action, political action, diplomacy focused on um, the real problem, which is Pakistan's support for the Taliban. Was there a discussion uh, th- that occurred when the decision was made about troop withdrawals? And, and, and I'm talking about both, both Canada and the United States, the other NATO troops at the same time, uh, with the understanding that when you f- create a void like that, 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 that as far as the Taliban were concerned, Chris, there was going to be a reckoning. That they knew who these people were. They knew they were aiding and abetting uh, their enemies, in other words, the NATO troops, uh, that this, this was inevitable that this was going to happen. And it sounds as if uh, we may have had the best of intentions, but we certainly didn't plan for this. We didn't plan for it because we were being optimistic and hopeful. Uh, in, in my view, we were being unrealistic. But let's recall what happened. Canada moved into a training role back in 2011. And then our troops left in 2014 when the Afghans took the lead in combat across the whole country. Uh, and they held their own against the Taliban uh, for a number of years until in 2019, a peace process began. And there was actually some progress in reducing levels of violence because the Taliban were receiving international recognition. They were meeting uh, the Americans first in Doha and then the Afghan government later. Uh, That went on for two years. But now that they have that recognition and the U.S. has drawn its last troops out, they have chosen not to implement a ceasefire, let alone a permanent ceasefire, and instead to escalate their military offensive. So they have betrayed the trust put in them by the international community and by the Afghan government uh, and escalated the conflict just in the last few months. Um, And and that's something no one planned for. You're absolutely right. Uh, It has made another tranche of people, a whole new category of people in Afghanistan vulnerable to assassination. That's why we need to take action quickly. Absolutely do. Uh, I'm so glad you had some time to take uh, with us today to bring us up to speed on what's going on. It's a very troubling situation, and uh, we're getting little snippets of information here and there from some people, but uh, the stories that we're hearing are, are truly horrific, and, and I think it just underscores your point uh, that, that we really need to act on this and ramp up our efforts to try to do this. Uh, Chris Alexander, thank you so much for the time today. Hopefully we can stay in touch as uh, this process unfolds. Thank you. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Chris Alexander, of course, is a former Minister of Citizenship and Immigration and the former resident ambassador. Matter of fact, the first resident ambassador to Afghanistan for the Canadian government. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.